Okay, I say we are recording our interview. Today I'm talking with Rachel Lance about her new book in the waves, which uses a little bit of research material from the Hagley archives. But to get us started, can you give us an overview of your whole project? Yes. So my project was to look at the mysterious sinking of the Civil War submarine H.L. Hunley. Uh, this submarine was a 40-foot long, four-foot diameter homemade submarine that was used during the Civil War by a small group of, I kind of think of them as like a ragtag assembly, who was trying to help break the Union blockade. So they eventually brought this submarine to Charleston, South Carolina, where the Union warships were blockading this harbor and stopping any new supplies from getting in. And this obviously had a very negative effect on the South, which didn't have a ton of industry of its own. So the submarine was one of the tactics that the Confederacy came up with in order to try and sink some of those ships and either break that blockade or at least like terrify them enough that some of them would be less willing to patrol as well. So on February 17th, 1864, the Hunley cranked out to its target, which was the USS Housatonic. And I say cranked because that's literally how this boat was propelled. There were eight men inside. One was in charge of steering and navigation. And then the other seven were all positioned at locations along a crank handle. And that was how they turned their propeller. So they cranked this thing out about four miles to the nearest Union warship, which was the Housatonic. And to attack it, they had, at the end of a spar, this massive copper black powder torpedo. And at the time of the Civil War, when they used the word torpedo, they didn't mean the modern self-propelled devices. So this was something that was stationary. So you have this long submarine, the model of which is actually behind me, um, and with a 16-foot spar attached to the bow end, and then the torpedo attached to that, and it was pressure, pressure triggered. So as they cranked it up to the hull of the Housatonic, and they impacted that wooden hull, it set off the bomb. Now, in 2000, they brought this submarine up, um, and it disappeared after its attack. Nobody knew what happened. They brought the submarine up, and they recovered it, and for me, that was where it got really interesting. Because um, there are a lot of ways to sink a ship in a massive explosion, but this one was a little bit different because all of the crew were still inside. And furthermore, they were still seated at their stations. So these guys had a couple different ways to get out of the vessel. We know they attacked on the surface because there were witnesses that reported it from the Housatonic. We know they were able to release the weights from the bottom of the submarine from the inside, and they didn't even try to do that. They didn't even try to get to the exits. They didn't even unlock one of the exits. And they also had no signs of skeletal trauma. So when I was at Duke as a graduate student, I was working on problems of blast trauma and underwater blast physiology. So to me, the first time I heard about this, um, it really seemed like a blast problem. I think anytime you have a gigantic bomb that goes off and then a bunch of people die, you should at least investigate that bomb and find out what happened. So um, that was what brought me to Hagley. And that was a really amazing experience because I had to kind of figure out how black powder would have worked in the 1860s. And the archives at Hagley are the place to be for that. So I was really lucky to be able to spend a week there digging through the archives, looking for some of this meticulously gathered um, test data that the DuPonts had created and documented over their decades of work with black powder. 
they of course were going to be on the union side, but they were still using 1860s techniques. And so their test data and their kind of recipes gave me a lot better idea of what was happening at that time. So what was happening at that time? Oh my gosh, so much black powder research. So uh, at that time, this was before the invention of high explosives like TNT. So what they were really focused on doing was making the black powder as effective as humanly possible. At Hadley and with the DuPonts, they were focused on supplying the union side of the military. And they, I would have to fact check this number, but I believe that they supplied about half of the union stores of black powder. It was a substantial amount that they produced there. Um, and while they were doing that, of course, they were approaching this as a scientific problem. These guys were chemists. And so they had these like lab notebooks of how they were testing black powder. And the reason that was super interesting to me is because testing explosives is still tricky in the 21st century. Um, you have to have a lot of really advanced equipment. The gauges for it are very complicated and difficult to build and they're difficult to set up correctly. And you also have to have um, computers that can acquire the signal fast enough. Like we're literally talking about an explosion. So we're talking about something that has to operate on the time scale of a high-speed camera. So one of the things that was really exciting to me was to go through those Hadley documents and look at how they were calculating how strong these blasts were. And they were coming up with like little copper devices that they would screw into the side of a cannon. So like when they fired a cannonball, the copper device would crush and they could measure how much pressure it was generating from that. And so that was really invaluable to me because they had, they had pressure measurements from the 1800s, um, which I could then kind of use to create estimates for what would happen with the Hunley and compare it to my own modern black powder blast data. Did you find that the results were consistent? Like, did, did you get what you expected? Yes. Uh, so uh, yes, I got the data that supported my theory. I think any scientist, like there's always a huge asterisk on that, right? We're just, that's how we are. We're like, and here are the limitations. Um, so what they were building at the time were torpedoes in the size of hundreds of pounds of black powder. They would have been about the size of a beer keg. Uh, some of, one of the historical documents that's been propagated really widely said that it was 135 pounds. Um, I found other historical documents that come from a more reliable resource that said it would have probably been 200 pounds. So either way, it's huge. Um, so I was not, I was, I was asked nicely by the ATF not to build a 200 pound black powder bomb and set it off. And I, I agreed, I agreed with their logic. Um, so I had that limitation of my charge sizes were a lot smaller. But the data from Hagley lined up with some other modern black powder data of those really large charge sizes. And it showed that my scaling of the problem was working correctly. So yeah, that was pretty exciting. So for someone who doesn't really know much of anything about black powder, like how big would a 200 pound black powder bomb be? Like how, how exceptionally destructive? Oh, it's pretty destructive. Um, so underwater, the key to these underwater explosions is all about where they were located. And the crew of the Hunley knew that. So their black powder guy, they had two black powder guys who were brothers, Gabriel and George Washington Reigns. 
and they just pop up everywhere in all the Civil War black powder literature. So they knew that the key to causing destruction was to get this torpedo lower in the water. And so they had this about four to eight or eight feet beneath the surface of the ocean and when they jab it into the side of the Housatonic. So to give you a size scale, the Housatonic is 200 feet long. So it was a wooden ship, it's 200 feet long. This is obviously really massive. Um, and then there's a contemporary drawing of the blast that's actually fairly accurate to what like the water plume explosion would have looked like and it can it, the water plume um, resulting was about a third the length of the Housatonic. So if you can kind of imagine that dramatic scene where you have this massive sloop of war and then the rear or the starboard stern was where the Hunley hit. So when this black powder torpedo went off there was this huge plume of water um, it wouldn't have necessarily like um, hit everyone along the ship, but they all reported that they immediately knew their ship was going down. There was absolutely no question about it. Even the people inside the ship who hadn't managed to physically see the explosion um, said that they felt it and they felt the ship lurch and they were like, oh, we should probably get out of here. And so they evacuated. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm getting ahead or aside of myself, but do you know how quickly the ship sunk? Yes, it was on the floor of the ocean in less than five minutes. So it went down very quickly. And part of that is that it was in shallow water. It was only in 30 feet of water. So it didn't exactly take a lot of time. But part of that was based on like that last question. It was the size of the explosion. Um, they were not messing around when they built this torpedo. It was designed to sink that ship. But then, um, the crew of the Housatonic, only five of them died. And the reason for that is they saw the Hunley coming. So the Hunley attacked on the surface. It had been proven to be really dangerous to use. It had already sunk with two crews inside. So a lot of crewmen had already died. So they were ordered to attack on the surface. So just like a little bit was poking out above the water. Um, so the Housatonic got a little bit of a warning when they saw this Hunley approaching them. And the crewmen, I think this is a sign of a good leader. Uh, the captain of the ship wrote later, he was like, I thought about ordering them to their battle stations, but it was pretty obvious we were going to sink at that point. So I thought I would let them save their own lives and keep running to the bow. And I was like, you're, you're a good captain. So he was right. They had, I mean, seconds to a short number of minutes of warning. There was not enough. They tried to shoot at it. They tried to aim their artillery at it. It was already too close to take any of those measures. And so they all end up dashing to the front of the ship. The ship blows up. They all end up climbing the rigging. And so it's on the ocean floor in less than five minutes. And almost 200 men are climbing and hanging from the rigging for another 45 minutes or so before they could get rescued from another ship in the blockade. So it would have been tall enough that a little bit stuck out from the water, more or less. Yeah, it was actually considered a shipping hazard for a long time. Like there are all these records that are like, oh, the Housatonic keeps getting in the way of the shipping channels. So they kept kind of chopping it down and chopping it down. Um, <laughs> yeah. So was it ever fully removed from the ocean floor? The Housatonic, no. Uh, because it was so long and because it was wood and there was already a lot of damage, they kind of just cut it apart. 
And then after the war ended, salvage divers did go down there and take off all the metal parts. So we have like news reports of salvage divers recovering all of the metal, like the propeller screw and um, things like that. But they left the wood hull down there. So it's actually still an archaeological site. Um, if anyone's interested in that, the National Park Service did a really, really detailed site survey and they have a lot of just like beautiful scientific drawings of that. So if you just Google National Park Service Housatonic, it pops right up as a PDF. So uh, let's talk about that spar. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I've recently taken to calling it the narwhal tusk. So, <laughs> um, what would you, is there anything specific you'd like to know about it? Yeah, yeah. In the book, you referenced that the, the spar that was actually used was less than half the recommended length of what it should have been. Yeah. So that was, again, these guys, Gabriel and George Washington Reigns, they, they had the nickname the Bomb Brothers, and they, um, they knew their blast physics. So Gabriel Reigns would not have necessarily had the physics and the know-how to calculate exactly what the risk to the submarine was. But based on his experience just blowing a lot of stuff up, he knew that the submarine needed to be further away. And so his recommendation was um, that the spar be about 40 or 50 feet long. And that was an engineering problem because then you have like a device on the end of a really long spar and it tends to kind of pull the ship. So that was why they decided to make it a lot shorter. They made it only 16 feet and then they made it on a downward angle. So they were actually even closer to that. So as we were talking about the Housatonic, it's 200 feet long. This charge was big enough to consume about like the latter third of the ship. Well, now you have it's only 16 feet from the Hunley. Um, so that was part of what was indicating to me that they might have suffered some of the negative effects from this blast. And um, yeah, so Gabriel Reigns knew, he knew that their spar wasn't going to be long enough, but he also didn't think very highly of these submarine boats he was pretty disparaging about them and did not pull his punches about it. This was not a man who hid his opinion. So he wrote like in his actual textbook, he called them, um, he called them abortions of creative genius. So, uh, which I think is a pretty harsh way to describe someone else. Abortions of inventive genius. Yeah, so I think it's a pretty harsh way to describe someone else's invention. Did he recognize, or did anyone at the time uh, recognize that it was as dangerous as what it proved to be? I think they knew it was dangerous, but I don't think they knew why. So because this thing had already sunk twice, and so I talk about both of the sinkings in more detail in the book, but it had already sunk twice, literally just during practice and training missions. One full crew died and one partial crew died. Some of them escaped in one of that. But so people already knew that there had been two sinkings of this thing where they had had to raise it and then clean out the dead bodies afterwards. Um, so it earned the nickname, the peripatetic coffin. So it's basically considered like the moving coffin. And um, so it had been called that somewhat disparagingly within the Confederacy, 
But you have to also remember too that in 1860, 1863 to 1864 is when the siege of Charleston was happening. So these were troops who were being shelled and bombed on a nightly basis. And I think that was a really big motivator behind why some of them were willing to get into it anyway. Like if, if you're going to be bombed every day and every night, no matter what, um, you start, I would think, searching for more creative ways to help that war end no matter what, um, because you start to recognize that you're still at risk on a day-to-day -day basis. But yes, there's no record that indicates. So my final theory was that the blast, even though it didn't rupture the hull of the Hunley, managed to severely injure or kill the crew while they were still inside. Um, so I go into the, the physics of how that's possible and how blasts can behave in ways nobody expects um, in the book. But yeah, that was my theory. I don't think any of them knew that that was possible. So they knew it was dangerous, but they might not have been expecting to die. Yes. On their list of ways that this thing was dangerous, I don't think was the one that actually killed them. <laughs> so. Actually, there was something I wanted to ask you about the, the project in general. And, you know, you do talk about this in the book too, but like, uh, how are you able to stay sort of at an arm's length to describe these, uh, blast effects and not like bother yourself. I mean, I found it like riveting in the same way I would find a horror novel riveting. Yeah. yeah. I think that, I think that's, that's definitely um, like a psychological coping mechanism for everyone in the field of injury and trauma. So me personally, and I know a lot of other people in this field, we get into these subjects because I know my reasons were that I really relate to people who feel kind of broken. Um, I really, I think that's a horrible feeling. And I think it's one that I'm very proud to be able to be in a line of work where I work on safety and I work on prevention. None of my stuff is aimed towards building weapons. It's all built. It's all aimed towards like creating safe standoff distances and stuff like that. Um, so I think there's this double, way of thinking about it where some days you do need to recognize that you're talking about human beings because that is ultimately the motivation for every single one of these projects. So this one to me was a project about a new way for people to die from blasts that definitely hadn't been talked about at length and was a danger that needed to be at least assessed um, because anytime you're building something new, you want to make sure you take into account all of the possibilities when you're looking at protection of your guys inside. Um, and so that is really important to sometimes be aware of, but it can also reach a level where you become non-functional. So there are days where for me, I'm reading hundreds of case reports in a day. It's not emotionally possible to process all of those as real human deaths, um, that would, I think, drive anyone to a little degree of insanity. So you end up developing kind of like this switch for it where um, you have to talk about it in terms of physics alone. And then certain days you have to talk about it in terms of like, okay, remember, these are people. This is why we care. This is why we show up for work in the morning. 
is that part of what uh, made sticking with the project for so long? I mean, like, did you envision at the start of all of this that this would become something that would take up so much time in your own life to the point of where, like, is, uh, oh, boy, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't do my, my background notes here, but is this, like, your first book, too? <laughs> yeah, this is my first book. Um, <laughs> so I, this is my first book, and I, I actually wrote it. I never, I never thought I would be an author. Um, I just wrote it because I did this project and then everyone kept asking me to describe it in great detail, which has never happened before with a scientific project. So finally I was like, okay, I'll, maybe I'll just write it down. This is clearly a piece of American history that a lot of people care about. Uh, I, when I first started this project, didn't know how complicated it would get. Um, initially I was just going to look at kind of the breathing gas they had in the boat. For me, that's actually a super easy problem. That's something I used to do professionally quite often. And um, when I would build underwater breathing systems. And so I thought that would just be like a week or two of work, right? Um, no, it ended up spiraling really wildly out of control. But once I was committed to figuring this out via experiments, or at least like sometimes in science you're wrong. It was possible that my theory was wrong. Luckily, I don't think it was. But like, I at least wanted to do the experiments and conclude one way or the other. Uh, so that was really important to me once I got started. So once I was in it, I was in it to finish. But yeah, at the beginning, I didn't know what I was getting into. Um, do you have a background in history as well? Not really. I'm just a huge fan of history. So that was actually pretty exciting to me to be able to do it because I think it gave me a good opportunity to let my brain switch between topics. So like I had hardcore science days and then I had days where I was just really researching history or like my weekend Hagley where I got to just fully delve into um, reading these old documents and seeing what it was like to do archival work, which if, if anyone's wondering, it's a little bit like gambling. Like you could spend the whole day just reading really tiny handwriting and just completely losing. Um, but then there'll be that one moment where you hit a jackpot and that that's enough to like keep you going for a while. It's pretty exciting when you run across that, that one document you were looking for that says what you needed. So what was your most exciting jackpot? Oh gosh. Um, I actually, I do think it was at Hagley of Black Powder because that was such a huge problem. Like this black powder, nobody really uses it anymore unless you're black powder hunting. This is a long obsolete explosive. So it's been centuries since anybody really did any kind of experiments with black powder. So there's no data. Um, I mean, there's some, but it's, it's all over the place. It's very, um, it's very fluid and changing with the scenarios that it's in and stuff like that. And so I remember going through these lab notebooks and they're like just stacks and stacks of lab notebooks. And I remember finding one data point that was the exact setup of the Hunley's torpedo. And I was so excited about it. And I immediately like took, I, I was recording everything with camera. Like that's how I was digitizing things. So I took a bunch of pictures and then I took a bunch of pictures with my cell phone and I texted it to a bunch of people as if they would know what I was talking about. But I didn't even care. I was so pumped. I was like, look, just be excited about this with me. <laughs> so um, but that was a really big breakthrough because that was a really important piece of the scientific process of evaluating what happened.
And then with uh, jumping in not only to history, but to, to Civil War history, what was that like to suddenly have all of these concerns about, you know, very contemporary, as we've seen this summer, political concerns come in with studying a field like this that is still pretty charged? It is. It's really charged. Um, the main concern from the history perspective is the way that that impacts your sources. When you're reading about the Civil War, um, it's a lot different than if you're reading about World War I or World War II. And I've done kind of historical science projects on both of those as well. They haven't become books like this one did. But um, with those, typically people have a lot less emotional attachment to their mental narrative of what happened. Uh, whereas with the Civil War, people get really upset about it. And I think a lot of that is because obviously it still has contemporary ramifications. Like the, the institution of slavery was horrifying. Reconstruction was an attempt at ameliorating some of it. It didn't go nearly far enough um, because then immediately segregation happened. So obviously a lot of the American population is leaving today with shadows of the civil war that affect their everyday lives. And that means that a lot of people get really emotionally biased towards what they really want to believe because of the way that it's impacting their life today. So for me, when I was going through and doing the history, I had to address that by um, being as careful as humanly possible. So I really went back to primary sources every possible opportunity. I was very, very unwilling to put anything in the book if I wasn't able to literally like look at the handwritten document from the 1860s slash find two or three others and put them in there. Um, and so, yeah, that became a very difficult issue. So for what it's worth, I think you handled it really, really well. Thank um, you. Both from the history and the science part, you know, I am, I, you know, I was a remedial math student who got straight C's yeah. and I got it. I managed to read through the book in just a day. Oh, good. Yeah, no, that was my goal is like math can get very complicated, but you don't need to understand calculus to understand what calculus teaches us about the universe. Um, so that was, I tried to communicate, not necessarily the equations, there, there are no equations, but um basically like the underlying meaning of what it means. So I'm, I'm glad you like that. Yeah. I think um, we're starting to wind down a little bit. Uh, is there anything that I haven't asked you today that you really wish I would have, like that you were excited to talk about, but that we didn't cover? Uh, no, I think you've done a really good job of this. Um, I, I think one of the common questions that I get is, um, it was the why did you decide to write a book and that 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 one we kind of talked about a little bit already is um i it was very fascinating to me to learn how many people cared about this story and i think that's been one of my favorite parts about this experience is meeting new people who really relate through this project so i think of this book as kind of like an extended thank you note um, so when talking about the science, like each of the cast of Motley characters that's in there um, has become someone that I see in touch with and become a friend. And we had absolutely nothing in common except for 
the shared determination to work on this puzzle together. Like I didn't have any money. I couldn't give them anything to thank them. They were all just volunteers. And so I was really excited to tell that part of the story of science. Um, I think that's really important now, especially as we deal with coronavirus um, and we, everyone keeps waiting for a vaccine is this reminder that science behind the science, there is, just a huge, huge number of scientists who are putting thousands of hours of their lives into things. Um, and they are kind of living life as it happens too. And so that, that to me is an important process to describe. Right. And if I may ask one final question. Sure. Do you see yourself working on any other similar projects in the future? Ooh, well, so I, I I do now hold a faculty appointment. Um, I don't think that made it in the book because it's pretty recently. So Duke offered me a faculty appointment. So earlier today, I was working on a report from another underwater accident type situation. Um, and it was looking at deaths from a different cause, but it's still underwater physiology. So I'm very passionate about that field, about extreme environments, about blast exposure, blast physics. And um, I am already working on other projects for that. In terms of the history, I do think that the way history and science interact is something that's really undervalued. You tend to get people who care about one or the other, and they don't realize how much they're interconnected. Um, like stainless steel was invented because of World War I. They needed something that wouldn't rust in the trenches. So that's just like one example of the way they're linked together. So I actually already am working on a second book and it's another nonfiction book. And it's about a group of scientists who were active during World War II um, it's in downtown London, even during the Blitz. And they were doing experiments on themselves in order to figure things out that the, the military and the Navy needed to know uh, in order to eventually have a successful invasion of Normandy. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that as, as another project in the same area. Wow. So I'll look forward to that too, just as much, but I guess in the meantime, I'll have to reread in the waves a few more times. Yeah. I can't write them as quickly as people can read them. <laughs> so, but. All right. Uh, thank you. Yeah, no, thank you very much. And I, thank you again to Hagley for um, having these archives and keeping this history alive so that people like me can pillage them for our science. All right.